the obsolete man, is an episode in the old black and white television series, The Twilight Zone. Some of you might remember that old black and white TV series, The Twilight Zone, hosted by Rod Serling. And in The Obsolete Man, Rod Serling narrates about a man whom the state declared obsolete. This man is a librarian, and the state has banned books. The man also believes in God, also proof of obsolescence, because the state has declared that God does not exist. The librarian named Wordsworth is no longer useful to the state, and he is therefore sentenced to death. The obsolete man. This episode was first aired uh, in 1961. And so you can sense the era of the time. There's a Cold War going on between the United States and the Soviet Union. And, uh, and it, it's an episode I wish you would watch. Because it's an episode about the dignity of human life. It's also about the worth of work. And it's a frightening parable of a world where certain people uh, declare other people obsolete. And the episode raises the question, who gets to make that call? Who gets to make that decision? Who decides what is essential and what is obsolete? Sometimes a crisis can do that. Wouldn't you agree? Twelve months ago, some jobs we thought of as essential, now they're being threatened with obsolescence. COVID has really kind of posed an existential threat to the existence of, say, even in-person gatherings, bricks-and-mortar movie theaters, college campuses, office facilities, yes, even churches. And even before COVID, uh, certain jobs in our economy, which were thought standard fare. I'm thinking, of, I'm thinking of years ago, you know, who would have thought that a switchboard operator would no longer be uh, considered essential? Or what about a typesetter? Or what about a video store clerk? Certain assembly line manufacturing positions, certain products like phone books and incandescent light bulbs. Remember those? Landline phones. These were kind of just a part of uh, everyday life. But now, this whole notion of obsolescence, it kind of makes you wonder, is there any asset or activity protected from obsolescence? And our scripture today, the last verse that we heard in our Advent reading, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, speaks with a resounding yes, yes, but now remains faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. 
Yes, the Apostle Paul says, love is an asset that's never obsolete. Amen? Love is an asset that's never obsolete. Love, as depicted in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, will never expire, never go out of style, never go out of date or out of fashion. It will never turn useless or ineffective. Love is an asset that's never obsolete. That's what the Apostle Paul is driving at as he culminates this beautiful, lyrical, theological, doctrinal, scriptural passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is an asset that's never obsolete. And I want us to explore this truth by asking some questions. The first is this. What does Paul mean when he says that love is never obsolete? Where is that in these verses? Then, so what? You can see where I'm going, right? What, so what, now what? What's the significance of this? What, why is this such an important truth for us to understand? And then finally, what does it look like to live a life of love in the light of this truth? That's where we're going. What, so what, now what? But before we get to question number one, I need to answer the, the big question of why this matters. Let's make sure we get that. And here's why this matters. In the next week, in the next few days, maybe it's already started for you already. Some of us are going to be spending time with friends and family and, frankly, folks who are hard to love. Okay? I read your emails. And, and we read Scripture verses like, Love is patient and kind, and then verse 7, love bears all things, endures all things. And we think, well, the Apostle Paul never met my relatives. And guess what? On some of those rare occasions, even we can be hard to love. And what I want us to understand is that if you are striving to love, hard to love people, I believe that's evidence of your salvation. I really do. Because, see, before you met Christ, you didn't care. But now that you know Christ, now that the Holy Spirit is living inside of you, you have a decision to make, don't you? See, And uh, the decision is, am I going to follow the flesh? Am I going to follow the world? Am I going to follow the old Randy? Is the old Randy going to live? Or is the new Randy in Christ going to take over? See, You see, here's what we're going to learn. Here's what we're going to learn. The more we demand that others be lovable in order for us to care, the less loving we are. Love shines brightest and best, and you, we shine brightest and best when we care about people um, in their unlovable states. (laughs) Listen to me. Jesus' cross is not merely the means by which we are saved. It is the model by which we must live. And that's why love is an asset that's never obsolete. So yes, this matters. This matters. So let's go to work with question number one. What does Paul mean when he says that love is never obsolete? Now, 
almost every Bible commentary says that the phrase, so now or but now, uh, could have two meanings. So now or but now in your translations can either mean for the time being, a reference to the here and now, or it can mean, so now that I've said all there is to say about the necessity of love, verses 1 through 3, the qualities of love, verses 4 through 8, and the durability of love, verses 8 through 12. So, so now that I've said all there is to say about it's love or nothing, uh, or love is a fountain, not a faucet, it stands to reason that the words so now or but now, Paul is saying, therefore, for this reason, henceforth and forevermore, what Paul is doing here in these verses is he's basically concluding his argument. He says, faith, hope, and love remain. This priceless threefold class asset of faith, hope, and love. They're often bundled in Scripture. For instance, if you look at verse 7, you'll see it says that love believes all things and love hopes all things. You see how they're kind of bundled together? And write down 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, Paul commends the Christians in Thessalonica for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3. See how they're all together? Oh, and just uh, write down Colossians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. In Colossians 1, verses 4 and 5, Paul just gushes over the Colossian Christians for their faith in Christ, their love for other Christians, and the hope laid up for them in heaven. Colossians 1, 4 and 5. Oh, and even the Apostle Peter doesn't want to be left out of this. In 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21, 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21, Peter says that Jesus was raised from the dead so that your faith and hope are in God and that this truth might purify your soul so that you will love others from a pure heart. You see, faith, hope, and love are never far from one another. They are assets of our election in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, this unwavering trust in the promises of God. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the assurance of things not yet seen. Faith and hope. Hope, hope looks ahead. Hope is the confident expectation of a guaranteed result that changes the way I live. My life is changed because of my rock foundation firm hope in the life, death, burial, resurrection, and sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, hope, and love, love, agape love, my joyful attraction to seek your good for no other reason than your good. That's Christian love. I mean, Paul's not just talking about being sweet and nice. He's talking about the gritty, difficult, dirty provision, help, encouragement, and support, even when it costs. Even when love goes unacknowledged 
and unappreciated. He's talking about love in action. He's talking about the kind of love which in verses 4 through 8 are depicted by 15 action-oriented verbs. Love. Love that dissolves divisions. Love that brings people together who would otherwise hurt and hate and even kill one another. And here's the deal. You must know this. This level of love was not known in the ancient world because agape love outside of Christianity was the kind of love that had to be earned. You had to be worthy of agape love. But Christianity took that word and baptized it in the birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection of King Jesus and gave it new meaning. And here we're talking about it today. In his book, Loving People, author John Townsend wrote, you may think, well, you know, that person doesn't deserve my love with what he's done. And you may be right. And that's the point. No one deserves love. Not you, not me, not the good guy. No one deserves love, but everybody needs love. The unkind, the self-centered, the destructive people in your life are so love-starved that they need a miracle to get them out of their mess. And, and we're not talking about enabling love. We're not talking about the kind of love that is just kind of given as a reaction that really doesn't help. We're not talking about, we're not talking about toxic charity. We're talking about love for the unlovely. We're talking about a miracle that will move a person from the domain of evil into the kingdom of love and life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the good news of Christmas. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's why the apostle Paul says, but the greatest of these is love. Because God doesn't practice faith. We practice faith. And God doesn't hope. <laughs> we hope. But God is love. And we love because he first loved us. Anytime any one of us displays love, it is really a response to the God who has initiated love in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are most like God when our love is alive in God. And that takes me to question number two, the significance of this. Why, why, does, why does Paul emphasize the importance of love in 1 Corinthians 13? Well, let's just let Jesus do the talking here. In John 13, so remember this, John 13 is your pastor's opinion, the best commentary on 1 Corinthians 13. You'll see in a moment. Jesus said in John 13, By this shall all people know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So how do you know if a believer is alive? How do you know if a church is alive? Look for love. 
If there's love, there's life. When Christians put love into practice, that's proof that the life of God is present. And when Christians do not practice love, when Christians fight and squabble and divide and criticize, as the Corinthians are doing, what's it say? Well, there's no life and there's no testimony. And and the problem is that the Corinthians were fixated on, on spiritual gifts such as prophecy and knowledge and tongues and all the rest. And Paul's point is that these gifts, which are so very important in themselves in building up the church, they're only important in this age. One day, the, those gifts will be obsolete. And when this life passes and we enter the glory of God who is all in all, these gifts which have been so useful will be unnecessary in the life to come. But the three class assets bundled together abide through all eternity, Paul says. These three remain, they abide. Perfected faith realized hope, and cross-shaped love. And in an ironic tragedy, the Corinthians thought they had it all because they were an incredibly gifted and talented church. I mean, they were flush with abilities and resources and talents. I mean, they had so much. that They were like, well, what? How, how much better really can the future be? I mean, what? It was like the future held nothing more in store for them when, in fact, the opposite was the case. Everything they had was about to be obsolete, and only the love they lacked would abide. And so Paul is like this investment broker pleading with his clients, take those assets out of those, of those uh, toxic deposits and put all of your assets here, your talent assets, your financial assets, your time assets, invest your lives and your treasures and your abilities and your energies. Put everything in faith, hope, and love. The last word in 1 Corinthians 13, in both the English and uh, Paul's original language of Greek, is the word love. And the first phrase in 1 Corinthians 14, remember they didn't have chapter and verse divisions back then, is pursue love. Pursue love. I'll tell you why this is so important, and it comes down to two very critical words in chapter 13. The words now and then. Now and then. This entire chapter, this entire letter on love is predicated on the assumption that there's a now and there's a then, that this life is not all there is. The life we live now is phase one of a life consummated when King Jesus himself appears to transform our present now bodies into the likeness of his own glory body. And that's the point of Advent. Advent reminds us that we reside in the now and the then. Now Christ came in a body 
in Bethlehem. Now Christ died. Now Christ is risen. Then Christ will return. Remember the Christmas carol we sing, Joy to the World, the Lord has come, a reference to his second coming. And then there's that stanza, He rules the world with truth and grace and makes, makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Every Christmas we remember Christ's first coming and it's also a chance for us to remember his ultimate coming. Every Christmas, we are mindful of Christ's arrival in humility, making us all the more hopeful of a splendid arrival in glory. And, and this notion of now and then is all over 1 Corinthians. Why in 1 Corinthians 1.7, at the very beginning of Paul's letter, he says, you are awaiting the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul says, Now we see a mirror dimly, then face to face. Oh, and then just glance over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, an entire discussion about the difference between our now bodies and our then bodies. You will have a body in the new heavens and the new earth. You're not going to be just a flitting spirit or ghost. And the body you have then is going to be different than the body you have now. Just as the field of corn stalks are different bodies than the seed of corn planted. Hmm. And the body you have then, get this, Paul says, verse 12. You will see God face to face. You will, you, you will, that, and that's what you want more than anything else. And life on earth is this quest for trying to have satisfied what will only ultimately satisfy us. And what will only ultimately satisfy us, church family, is to see God face to face. Like Moses in Numbers chapter 12, God said, I, I speak with him mouth to mouth, directly. And you will see God's face and you will have a face. There's some... Eastern religions that teach a kind of spiritual union with the cosmos where you, you just sort of dissolve into a sort of a, a, a cosmic oneness with the universe. That's not what Christianity teaches. Christianity teaches you will have a body, you will have a name, and you will have a face. And all of it has been brought about by the one who took on flesh in a body and who had a face and whose name is Jesus. Yes, I do think that John 13 is one of the most beautifully crafted commentaries on Christmas. It's that episode when Jesus washed his disciples' feet. He gave us a picture of Christmas. Listen. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, 
rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. Is that not a picture of Jesus laying down his splendor and glory? And taking a towel. Is that not a picture of him putting on flesh? And he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now that's love. And if he did it, he wants me to do it. In fact, that's what he said. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And that's how people are going to know that you are my disciples. And that's why Paul mentions the significance of love. This beautiful chapter, this beautiful chapter is not in the context of marriage ceremonies, although I've used it for the 130-some-odd marriage ceremonies I've conducted over the years here. It's a beautiful passage in that text. But let me tell you, its primary context is in congregational life. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, in the middle of worship. That's what 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, it's all explore the... the the importance of love in the context of the worshiping community. So what does this look like then when practiced? Well, well, first of all, we can't practice it by ourselves. We need help. We need the Holy Spirit. I mean, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul said in Galatians chapter 5 that uh, love is the first of the ninefold fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Love is first in line because of the Holy Spirit living in your heart. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. People who truly love others do so because of what's inside their heart, not what's inside the other person's heart. I cannot overstate the significance of that. When you can empathize and when you can express compassion for someone who is, who is selfish and unkind and hurtful, you are then truly becoming a loving person like Jesus. Like Jesus. And of course, of course, uh, we have to say that love is not just extended to hard people. Okay? Love is extended to our, our, our beloved brothers and sisters in the family of God. Love is extended to our ministry partners. So earlier this year, when our congregation was able to, uh, you know, 10 or 12 folks at a time distribute food at Garden Hills Academy last spring, that's love. Then when there were 30 or 40 of us who prayed out in street corners with brothers and sisters in Christ uh, uh, of our uh, sister congregations in Champaign-Urbana neighborhoods in July of this year, that's love. This fall, when we prepared uh, gifts and boxes for Operation Christmas Child, well, that's love. Recently, we were able to send notes of encouragement to Educators at International Prep Academy. And, well, that's love. That's God through you expressing love to our 
to our community. We want to be for our community. We want to be a congregation that's for our community. And today we're going to have an opportunity to extend God's generosity to two very important local ministries, Living Alternatives and Berean Covenant Church. And that's love. And Paul says, you know, now we see through a mirror dimly. The gifts of time and treasure and talent are, are cloudy depictions of clear glory to come. And today's offering, all of which will go to these two ministries, remind us that one day the King of glory will come. And, and gifts given today will one day fold into an entire community of love and grace. 1 Corinthians 13 is not just about love then, but it's about pure love now, but it's about love then. Because heaven is a place where effortless patience and kindness are on display. Heaven is where abundant generosity flows. Heaven is where we will all painlessly bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things. Imagine a place with shared joy and total community where everyone esteems everyone, where, where, where brothers and sisters from every tribe and ethnicity and language gather. Imagine a place with no masks. Heaven is a world of love. And, and so heaven is a language to learn, a mountain to climb, a skill to master, so that when Christ comes, we're ready. So when we practice love, we are preparing for what will be the norm. I, again, I say the cross is not just the means of salvation. It's the model for how God wants us to live. This, and this is not an easy world in which to believe in a God of love especially this year, death has stalked us in both sickness and in sin. But the glory of Christmas is that death has been defeated by an invasion of spirit-filled love. Love came down on a rescue mission. And why? Because God is attracted to your good for no other reason than your good. And so in love, Jesus is patient with me. In love, Jesus is kind to me. In love, Jesus bears me on his shoulders. In love, Jesus endures all my unendurableness. I, I can't wear Jesus out, and neither can you. And he's not backing down. Just as we are called to pursue love, he's pursuing us right now. And his love never ends, never falls apart. It never disintegrates. And he will sustain you to the end. And the extraordinary impossibility of love is an attractive possibility in the hands of King Jesus. So there's nothing obsolete about the love of Jesus Christ. Let his love change your life. Amen.